Hello and welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, and guys, the next couple of weeks of shows are going to be dedicated to a really awesome band that I recently discovered. Well, I didn't discover the band. The band already existed, but they've come into my reality. Um, here's what happened. So my friend Terry T-Bone Mathley, who has a podcast called T-Bone's Prime Cuts on the other side, fantastic interview, one of, one of the best in the business as far as I'm concerned. Um, I, even if I don't know or have any clue who his guest is, whenever I listen to one of his shows, he just he just brings everything alive for me. He's so great at asking questions, being very familiar with his guests where I'm like, all right, here's what I know about you. Let's learn the rest. <laughs> you know, he's much more professional and uh, much more talented. But anyway, he had posted something on Twitter at one point that uh, this band it was looking for people to uh, do interviews with because their new album was coming out. And so I took a screenshot of it and I'm like, OK, I need to get them on the list and reach out and all that good stuff. Didn't know anything about them, never heard of them. And I thought, OK, well, I'll, I'll do some research on them in the meantime and then, uh, you know, find a good time to put them in the schedule. And at that point, things were getting so busy with the book uh, that I was working on and um, another project. So I thought, OK, well, I'll, I'll keep them on the list. I need to get this done. I need to get this done. The album's coming out and all this so finally, I'm like, you know what? I really just have to do it. And uh, now the album's been out for a while. I'm way behind the the uh, curve on this, but uh, really glad I did. As I researched them, I found out that uh, one of the people that I grew up listening to, keyboardist David Stone from the band Rainbow, was on the album. And I thought, wow, that's that's super cool. And um, listened, so I went and bought the album, and I listened to it, and I thought, wow, this is some really good stuff. It really reminds me of what the metal scene was like in Colorado Springs when I was playing in a band there. We had a very progressive scene. And I mean, you'd think Colorado Springs, it's all, you know, horses and tumbleweeds, but it's not. It's it's a pretty big city now. And there were some really good bands in the late 80s, early 90s there. Uh, one, one or two of them still exist, actually, which is really cool. But this was the kind of music that we were playing. So I was immediately just drawn into it but it's very technical it's very intelligently done it's very well performed and so as, as soon as i listened to the album you know i i was hooked right there so uh this next couple of weeks is going to be my interviews with the band as well as my review of the album and their thoughts on the songs um scheduling has been very very difficult so uh between uh one interview that ended with the power going out and um, and another one that just ended with, uh, you know, constant scheduling conflicts. But we've been able to make it work uh, as well as possible up to this point. So don't have thoughts on all the songs from everyone, which is OK, because I have plenty to give you in that review. And that will be coming next week. This week, I'm doing the interviews. My interview with the vocalist, Michelle, will be part of the review episode uh, because it was a fairly short interview. That's the one when the power went out. And uh, it's it's been uh, a challenge to do this. But you know what? I've really enjoyed talking to these people. They're all absolutely wonderful, um, great musicians, every one of them. So creative, so talented. And you hear that in every song on the album. It's just fantastic. And uh, we'll get to the album next week. But now we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff. And that will include... Uh, some bits about the album, obviously, and then the the individual thoughts on the songs will then be part of the review, just like with with Graham Bonnet, 
Um, love when I can do that. I love when I can have the actual artists talk about the songs with me and, and get their perspective on them, how they came about, what they remember about them, something specific that happened sometimes. Um, it's just such a joy for me to be able to do that. But before I get to my interview with uh, Jerry Fielden, who is the primary writer and, and guitar player of the band, as well as mandolin, um, just a quick update on what's happening with me. So the album has uh, has slowed in production uh, only because of the the injury to my arm. Um, it, it doesn't appear that it's going to get better for a while. So I'm just trying to get through it, but it's taking a lot longer than I had anticipated along with my podcast schedule. Um, and then the uh, the book series is in the process of being edited now. So uh, that also will have an effect on the particular release date of the album. Reason being is that there's no drop dead release date for the album. Um, even though, the, you know, the closer you get to the end of the year, you really don't want to release anything because you're interfering with Christmas and all that, unless you're doing a Christmas release, which this is not. And um, but with the book, it has a very finite deadline of when you want to get that first one out there. So uh, this is a trilogy. So uh, it's important that the first one release by a certain time frame. So that might take a little bit of precedence over getting the album done. We'll see how it all comes together. I'm I'm still hoping for August for the album, but I'm not really sure at this point, just because it is going a little slower than I had hoped. Um, but I think it's going to be a good album. I think I think you will like it. I hope that you will like it. And uh, we'll we'll just see. So uh, all that being said, let's talk to uh, my new friend, Jerry Fielden, who is just a, a fantastic guitar player, great writer. And I had so much fun talking to him, hearing stories of people he works with. He is uh, also a book editor. He was editing his mom's books. He had uh, he does the translations for Ian Gillen's website, Caramba, which was a, a complete you know, left field surprise when I read that. Uh, he's uh, just a very talented musician. He's played with a lot of wonderful people. He's toured and played on stage with a lot of great people, uh, been a support act, um, just just uh, amazing history that he has. And all this came out of the fact that somebody retweeted, hey, we've got an album coming out. We're looking for some press. So it just goes to show that sometimes good things come out of just the simplest amount of effort. Just a simple tweet. Somebody retweets it. Somebody else sees it. Boom. Now I found an album that I absolutely love. Can't wait to dig into their back catalog and met some really awesome people. Got to talk to David Stone, who I never thought, you know, in my wildest dreams that would ever happen. And that interview is going to be coming right after this one. So check whatever pod, uh, podcast player that you're listening on. You should already see that one on your playlist. And um, yeah, good times, guys. Let's have uh, let's have a good time. I hope you enjoy the interview as much as I did doing it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it is time to bring our guest on the show. I am very excited to talk to this man. He has had a very interesting life. I love the new album from Era Patches. This is Jerry Field. And Jerry, how are you? I'm great, Scott. Thank you for having me. Thanks for taking some time to come on the show. And please tell me I pronounced the band's name right. Yes, that was absolutely correct. Good, because I haven't had any coffee yet. So I'm, I'm off to a good start. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Grab a cup of joe for sure. <laughs> uh, some people tried to pronounce it uh, Arapakis or Arapasis. Uh, me, I just like Arapachis. It just, you know, grabs you. It's got a flow to it. Well, it's the Italian pronunciation. So if you go to Rome, you say, Dove è la, è la 
Ooh, something like that. That sounds so much better with an Italian accent. Oh, thank you. I uh, I, I have to say, uh, I really this is the first album of yours that I've heard, and it's, I think your is it your eleventh? Well, it's actually our eighth full length, and we have three EPs as well. Okay. This is the first time I've heard your music, and I was absolutely blown away. I usually listen to music while I'm doing two or three other things, uh, and I just had to stop and listen to the entire album because it just drew me in right from the beginning. Did you design it to be this technical? Well, I, I'm honored. Uh, the way I, I write albums is like I come up with an idea and I just go run with it. You know, it could be anything. So, no, not designed to be completely technical. I mean, if you listen, you know, to uh, Back at the Gate, that's blues, you know, with a little bit of a little bit of jazz. Uh, so it, it's not hugely technical. I, I just thought there were so many unexpected twists and turns that it, it wasn't predictable at all. It wasn't like rock and roll where you can go, OK, I know that we're about to hit a chorus or a pre-chorus and then there's going to be a solo. Uh, this just went where it went and it, it just took off in surprising musical directions, different chord changes I didn't expect. It's a real thrill to listen to. Oh, thank you. appreciate that. It's an honor. Now, you obviously were influenced. I mean, you were you were working musician in the 70s. So you were obviously influenced by a lot of those bands. Was King Crimson a big, uh, a big influence for you? Oh, absolutely. Speaking of, I also met uh, Robert Fripp, John Wetton, uh, Bill Bruford, which were part of a very huge incarnation of King Crimson. Oh, yeah. Yeah. These guys are just amazing. Now, for you, because you've met a lot of the people that you uh, really were influenced by. Did you find that meeting them really lived up to the expectation of, of what you would hope they would be as a person? Yeah, a lot of them. I mean, I, I've met some uh, really amazing people. I mean, like I, I can, uh, Don Airy is one I was talking to you about uh, offline there. And and also uh, Brian May, really nice person. Keith Emerson. Uh, yeah, Wetton and, and Bruford, definitely nice. And Fripp, he was really interesting because he took the time, like, you know, to show me uh, his right hand, how he was using it on the guitar, you know. So I learned something there, you know. Uh, and uh, another guy that I used to hang around with in Montreal, and he's uh, ill uh, recently, is Frank Marino. Oh. Uh, Frank Frank's a really good friend. I mean, uh, I was over at his house a couple of years ago. He helped me produce one of my albums, uh, you know, Paradox of Denial. Uh, so... Yeah. I, I mean, ha everybody have a thought for Frank. Uh, I don't know what his illness is, but he's stopping him from playing. So that, that's all I know. That's the harshest thing for a musician. Yeah. Uh, I've seen it happen with Keith Emerson. Uh, and he was, uh, you know, uh, prodded by some of his fans to, you, you can't play anymore. So he killed himself basically over that. Right. I was devastated when, when I heard that. And I thought, it's so sad to me the demands that people that that your fans make on you when they became fans because you gave them something, and then they they somehow turn around and seem to have an ownership or think that they have some kind of ownership over you, and then they make demands like that. I I was I think I was more saddened by the way he was treated yeah, than anything else. Exactly, exactly, totally agree with you. Uh, you know so. Maybe that's one of the reasons why I make my music so diverse. So so they can't go, well, I expect this from you. That's true. Because right now, 
I tell people expect nothing from Arapatis because it could be anything, you know, and we've had some critics uh, say that we should, we're good at this so-and-so genre, so we should stay in so-and-so genres, but you know, that's not us. I, I, it's like go where thou wilt kind of thing. Yeah, you have to go with what you're feeling as a musician if you're not going in the direction that your soul is telling you to go or your fingers are telling you to go, then it's not going to come out in a way that you're going to be happy with. Yeah, we. I mean, we only have obligations to ourselves. And if what we count, what we come out with uh, is loved by the fans, uh, that's great. You know, they get it, you know. Well, I think you have to write what you're happy with. And then the hope is that people will enjoy it as well. But if you're writing because you're told to write a certain way, uh, I know sometimes if you're, you know, with you, when, when you're with a record company, they say, well, we need a single and you have to do certain things under those contracts. But for the most part, when you can write what you feel, that's the music that's going to come out the best. I mean, we have like <clears throat> signed to not really like a majors, but we are uh, with Black House Records for Distro. Uh, and these guys are, you know, middle, middle, uh, a very good little record company. And uh, they've always supported us 100%. And now we're also uh, with... Uh, yeah, it's Bullseye Records of Canada, which is a great historical company. They've done a lot of big names. Uh, we were really chuffed when uh, Jamie Vernon, the president, uh, said, yeah, sure, I'll help you guys give you some uh, e-distro, you know, electronic distro. And, and I go, that's fantastic, you know, to be grouped with such a, a bunch of legendary Canadian bands and so forth. Well, sure. You know, Gotto, all those bands, you know. It's interesting, though, that, that the digital and physical distribution is broken up by two different companies. Are they? Is that a new trend that I haven't noticed? Well, what I was doing for a while, I had uh, both distributions by uh, one company, and, and every company we've been with has, like, uh, they've been small operations, so if the owner got sick, that was it. You know, uh, I have two albums in limbo that I'm trying to get the, the rights back, who are... You know, the distributor won't give me the right back, but the, the record company, he doesn't remember stuff, you know? Oh. So, so uh, for uh, Netherworld and uh, and Disturbing Awakening, uh, <laughs> I don't know who has the rights right now. Wow. You know, I want them back. So after that, we were with Note Music. They folded, but they gave us our right back, so that was okay. So I did the electronic distro myself for a while, you know, using uh, uh, Route Note, which is a service that, uh, you know, you can put your electronic uh, releases everywhere you want, like Amazon and uh, Spotify and so forth. Uh, but uh, for this one, you know, I, I just said, I'd like to do something with Jamie. You know, we've been friends for like 20 years on online, you know, and so... Yeah, I talked to him about it, uh, and he said, oh, yeah, sure, you know. So that's that's how it came about. Hmm, Just uh, the two great record companies I'm with that, uh, that I really care. Well, and knowing that you have that support, that really helps when you do things like sit down to record your music because you don't have to think about, well, as soon as I get this done, I've got to work on this or that. You have trusted partners that you can work with. That's got to take a lot of that pressure off. Oh, Absolutely. I mean, Scott, Scott from, uh, you know, uh, Black House, uh, just amazing guy. 
he was also in like uh, green jelly and bands like that. So, you know, he, he knows, he knows the drill. Right. I like when people come from an artist background because that tends to stay in their head, at least for a while until the corporate world takes them over. Well, that's what I do. I mean, my day job is, uh, working in a pressing company, you know, so I press releases for bands and, uh, you know, I, I love working with all sorts of different bands. You know, we have everything from gospel to classical to the noise to, you know, black metal, whatever. We'll do it all. That's fun. I love that kind of variety because it keeps it from getting stale. If all you're reporting on is death metal, after a while, that's going to get kind of old. Yeah. So when a death metal, uh, black metal band wants to press a, uh, duplicate a cassette, for example, we do cassettes, we do vinyl, uh, we do CDs, DVDs, uh, USB keys, blah, uh, download cards. Uh, here I am advertising for my company. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. You know, word of mouth is everything these days. Yeah. Once a salesman, always a salesman. Yeah. At duplication.ca. <laughs> there you go. I'm going to put that in the show notes. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, that you've worked with Don Airy in the past. Uh, Don Airy has a, an interesting connection to Uriah Heep, which uh, is my other show. And uh, what what was your experience working with Don? Because it seems to me that any interview I've ever seen of his, he's very much a gentleman, very considerate, um, really lighthearted. He's a really enjoyable person. He has a great sense of humor. Uh, he's so easy to work with. He's professional. Uh, what can I say, you know, uh, and it's funny too, because like me and my wife, uh, my singer, we got together because of deep purple, our love for deep purple. Right. And of course, uh, me, I'm the, uh, French translator for Ian Gillen's website, gillen.com. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I get to meet them often. And, and one day after a show in, in London at, uh, Hammersmith, uh, me and my wife are kissing, you know, and Don goes, hey, stop that. And we turn around and, go, and we go, hey, it's because of you <laughs> that we're doing this. Everybody had a good laugh. Oh, that's awesome. I, I, We have another Rainbow Connection to talk about. But first, I have to ask you, I love Caramba. Um, I, I speak very little French. I've forgotten most of it. But uh, I, I love Caramba. I think it's a great site. How did you wind up doing the translations for that? Oh, that's quite a story because like uh, uh, once I got on Caramba, it was 2003 or something like that. And, and I sent an email, you know, to, to the address that was there say, hey, I would love an autographed picture of you, Ian, right? And uh, uh, I'd say, uh, thanks from Montreal, Jerry, blah, blah, blah. And uh, one day in the mail, I get uh, this picture of Deep Purple signed by all of them that uh, Ian sent me. Wow, and and that was cool, and then a couple of weeks later, uh, I get an, an email directly from Ian, and he goes, uh, "You're from Montreal. You speak French, right?" And, and I go, "Yeah." I answer. He goes, "How would you like to translate the website? I can't pay you, but uh, you can have tickets and backstages anytime you want to any Deep Purple show." Wow. So I go, "Oh yeah, I'm in." <laughs> so I've been doing I've been doing that since, <laughs> you know. So that's how I met Don and well, all of them, actually. Wow. The the closest I can come to that is when he was doing his solo tour for the uh, Gill and Zen album. Yeah, I saw him on that, too. It was a great tour. Uh, I was living in Arizona at the time, and he came to Scottsdale in, in uh, I think it was July or August, 
when it's, you know, 118 degrees outside, great time to be in the desert. And uh, I had reached out to his record company. I think it was Emergent at the time. And uh, I said, hey, I see that Ian's going to be in town in a couple months. Is there anything I can do to help promote the show? So they sent me uh, 25 posters or so. And they said, just, uh, you know, put these up somewhere where you're allowed to and take a picture and, and tell us what the location is of each of the shots. And I'm like, sure. Didn't really think anything of it. I'm happy to help. So uh, on, a, on two very hot days, I went out and did that. And then um, I sent them the pictures. And they said, okay, well, there's going to be a ticket waiting for you at the show, so don't buy a ticket. And I said, oh, that's very nice of you. You know, I, I didn't mind doing the work. I wasn't trying to get anything out of it. And I get to the venue and I say, you know, I should, I should have uh, tickets reserved for me. And they said, okay, here's your tickets and here's your backstage pass, which nice. I, I had no idea I was going to get. Oh, that's that's always cool. Oh, it was. I I, I got the but the uh, unfortunately the uh, meet and greet was just chaos. Everybody was there. Like everybody that was at the show got into the meet and greet. So <laughs> so I got about three seconds with Ian, just enough to shake his hand and say thank you for for everything. And uh, that to me is the most important thing. I'm not big on meeting names. I'm big on I want to thank the people that have given so much to me and influenced my life. And, you know, obviously Ian's one of those people being a huge Deep Purple fan myself. So that's, yeah. that was a really cool moment, as brief as it was. You know, what really cool moment happened to me uh, one day? Uh, I was talking to you about, uh, you know, having a drink with Don to say thank you for mm -hmm. playing on our album, right? Right. At, at, their, at their hotel. And then the next day, I got up like at six to go get a wristband to meet Jimmy Page. Oh, Wow. So that happened. I got the wristband, uh, met Jimmy Page for like two minutes. We talked. Uh, I gave him our album with Dawn on it. He, he thought it was cool. And uh, that was that, man. I was floating on air for the next two hours. Oh, I bet. I mean, because like, like Page is like a huge influence, too. You yeah, know, a, a, a huge influence on the, the entire world of music. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Wow, that's that's just amazing. But we have we have a rainbow connection too because you have keyboard player David Stone in your band. How did that come about? Oh, Dave, yeah, right. Uh that's that's quite the uh the story there because like I I saw like I saw an old interview of Dave's like uh around 2003, I think it was, and how he'd come out of like he had had uh substance problems. And he'd beat it, you know, and uh, he was starting to make music again. But I, I didn't hear anything he'd made like since since Rainbow. Mm -hmm. And I, I found out he had played with Max Webster as well for for, you know, on their uh, last album and and the tour after, uh, which was nice and, and great music. Uh, Universal Juveniles, the album is called. He played on some of it. And uh so I looked him up and s saw if he was on Facebook, and he was. So I added him. I said, "Hey, what you up to?" You know, and uh, he goes, "Oh, I'm uh, playing in jams in in Western Canada." And he was making money that way, and it was cool, you know, hosting and and jamming and stuff. And uh, at one point, I said, "Hey, you want a guest on the, our next album?" And, and he goes, "Sure." So uh, he guested on uh, Paradox of Denial on the song order of the ember queen and that that was great that was fun and and we talked and uh you know we got to know each other and 
I said, man, I had a lot of fun doing this with you and uh, me too, he says. And I go, hey, you want to do a full like release with me? It's a four, e- four song EP we're going to do. And uh, he did that. So he was officially in the band at that point uh, as a full recording member and uh, still is. And then we did uh, Water Dog after that. And I am so proud of Water Dog and everything that Dave's put into there. I let him, I just let him loose, you know, do, do what you want, give me your ideas, you know. And I gave him writing credit on some of the songs because what he did was so good. Sure. Uh, yeah. So Dave, like, uh, you know, and Dave, of course, he's a session musician now. So, you know, he's, I'm not mon- monopolizing him. I'm saying, <laughs> go out there, get some work, you know, you yeah. deserve it. Well, especially now, because most musicians income is, is session work. Yeah. And, and the idea of like, you know, the only persons that are like, uh, bound to Arapaches only are me and my wife, mm-hmm. but anybody else who plays with in our band, who is a member of our band, we have no problems with them going and doing their other stuff, making money, you know, because that's a reality. Yeah, well, we have to have our foundation before we can do anything else. And and I, I appreciate that. But what I really love about your story, Jerry, is that you have an idea and you just reach out and go for it. You know, it's either going to work or it isn't, but you're not going to be sitting there at the end of your life going, what if I would have just because you're going for everything you want now? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, my mom, who uh, died earlier this year of COVID oh. and uh, dementia, uh, she was a writer and she was, she did the same thing. She was she an older woman writing novels and stuff. That, that was so great, you know? And you were doing her editing. Yes, I was. Yeah. Another thing we have in common, I don't uh, edit people's books, but I, I, I'm a beta reader. So when they, okay, when, yeah, yeah, yeah. So for those who don't know, when, uh, when an editor's finished with the book and the writer makes those changes, then they send it out to beta readers to say, okay, we need fresh opinions, people that have never read this. Is there anything that doesn't make sense? Anything that stands out to you as odd? And then they smooth all that out before they release the book. Uh, it, it could be a challenging thing, but, uh, to help, a, to help another artist put out their dream into the world, that is such a thrill for me. Yeah, that's great. That's just wonderful. Before we get into uh, the album itself, Waterdog, uh, you have three solo albums out as well. Um, I haven't had the chance to listen to them yet. Are they a similar style? Is it something different? Yeah, it's like experimental. It's like uh, it's like the the crap stuff you do before the better stuff. <laughs> so I, I don't recommend them. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not even selling them. So you know. Oh really? Yeah. Well, you know, there's nothing wrong with it because you have to you have to experiment, you have to test the waters, and you're not really going to know what you can do unless you find some avenue to push those limits. Yeah, you know, I, I just actually at one point uh, after our let's see after our fourth album, I decided to like produce our own albums, and so like the fifth was okay. Um, the sixth was better, uh, and paradox. I love the mix on paradox, uh, and on Deja Hard and on water dog. These are all things I learned like, uh, like, uh, online Coursera, Berkeley, mm-hmm. all those courses, yeah. you know, in, in music production, vocal production and advice from, uh, uh, a famous guitarist from, uh, 
band with two female leads, which I won't name because <laughs> he doesn't want to be named. Okay. Ex-guitar player from that band. Uh-huh. Uh, helped me produce uh, a single. And I took his lessons all the way to, uh, you know, make the whole album like that. And, uh, of course, Frank Marino helped us produce uh, Paradox of Denial. Mm-hmm. So I learned a lot from all these people. Now I know how to do a half this decent mix. What did you think of the mix on that one? Well, being a sound engineer, I'm typically very critical of those kind of things. And I can say one of the things that really stood out to me right off the bat was how good the mix was. I love the balance of guitar and keyboards. Um, I Personally, I, I would have liked just a little bit more bass guitar, but please don't be offended by that because that's just my personal Absolutely taste. Absolutely not. Uh, the drums really cut through, which was nice. Um, love the sound of the drums. Just that really beefy snare really works for this kind of music. That's like a Gretsch uh, plated snare. Oh, okay. I, I, I use it like like I, on that drum kit there. I use that snare pretty well all the time. Mm-hmm. It it's just has a bang to it, you know? Yeah, it really does. Um, I thought the guitar tone was was fantastic. Thank you. Now, is that something that, I mean, you've been doing this for a long time, so is it something that you just kind of dial in and do, or do you really play with it and see what you can do differently? Yeah, I do. I do play with it, you know. Uh, get all sorts of different sounds, but I got my basic uh, guitar hero tone, like uh, in the dog. <laughs> right. So, so that serves me well for most uh, hard rhythms. And then I got some softer stuff that I really play around with, like with choruses and and phasers and you name it, you know. Do you find that it's almost difficult because we have too many tools available to us now? No, I limit myself. Oh, good. You know, I limit myself on the on the raunchier guitar. I know what I want. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but on the softer guitars, that's where I have fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I noticed that there were some really nice effects on some of the uh, the more um, emotional parts for guitar, uh, but they were blended so well that you almost have to really pay attention to hear them. It's more like you feel them and don't hear them. Oh, right. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I love that. Because I think people tend to use effects to define the sound instead of enhance it. Right. Well, I've actually, for for a long time, I've had, you know basically two pedals i've had the multi-effects pedal uh, boss me70 mm-hmm. and i have the sy300 uh, guitar synth i'm i'm uh, i was endorsed orsing roland you know here in canada oh. so i got one of the first ones and they're like uh, the, the the problems with the old guitar synths is you would hit a note and then it would be a few milliseconds before it came out this is instant mm. because they blended the original attack from the sound with the, the synth sound. Oh, okay. So SY300, really nice uh, piece of equipment. So what I was, where I was going with this was that uh, I, I had also amp and uh, cabinet simulation, you know, on, on that ME70. And after listening to Waterdog a few times, I go, well, why don't I try to reproduce that sound on the pedal too? Because it was like, crappy to me like the way it was coming out compared to the album and the secret was just to turn off the amp simulation uh, turn off the cabinet simulation and just pump up my marshall a little bit on the game you know and add some add some echo to get that uh you know what 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 was i saying guitar hero sound right yeah well that's smart 
so now I've got the same sound I had on the album. And back in the day, I used to put the uh, octave uh, on the guitar synth to beef it up. So I did that again, put a tiny little bit of octave. Uh, sounds great. I'm happy with it. I do love a good octave pedal sound. I remember the first time I think I heard it was when Rainbow did um, the song Difficult to Cure, which is Beethoven's Night Symphony uh, yeah. done in rock, but they did it with an orchestra. And I remember... Richie's sound just sounded so weird. And I found out he was using an octave pedal to get it. And I'm like, that's just beautiful. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And Richie uh, was one of the first to use uh, Moog Tauruses as well, uh, which was followed by uh, Ingvi as well. Um, and But uh, the first real octave sound I heard from a guitarist that I really liked was Leslie West. Oh, He had one of those uh, hooked up and... You know, he already has a beefy tone, just natural with no pedals. But when he was using that, it was like, wow, you know, this is this is why they call it mountain. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, it, it seems to me, too, that pedals have just gotten so outrageously expensive. I remember, you know, in the, in the 80s when a pedal was, you know, $40 and we had to save up for it now you know, three, four, five hundred dollars, some of these things. And I mean, granted, the technology is really cool, but I don't know how young artists are working their way into the business when when the equipment is so expensive now. But but then again, you know, uh, 40 bucks back in the 80s is like uh, 600 now. So <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> Fair enough. So my uh, my SY three hundred, you know, is like they they go for about a thousand, but I got a deal because I endorsed them. Right. But uh, I'm not going to say how much. But oh sure, it was a it was a good deal, and uh, it has its drawbacks because it's not actual sample sounds. It's like uh, it's like uh, having a a mini moog, say, and you got to try to get as close as you can to say that organ sound on it. It is feasible. Sure. Uh, and, and because I like the uh, instant response uh for me that that makes it a no-brainer because uh, i don't use that many sounds i use a pad strings uh the odd uh fifth harmony and stuff like that mm -hmm. but uh on stage i try to keep it simple it's, well that's that's the best because the less uh things that you have the less things can go wrong that too yeah well, that was going to actually lead me to my next question, because I, I was thinking that now that you've conquered that sound on, on your physical gear, it's certainly going to help you in a live setting. Uh, you know, things are starting to open up here in America. Uh, Cirque du Soleil has opened three shows now, uh, and uh, some of the other shows have started to, to open. It's, it's almost like now we're, we're acting like nothing ever happened. I know Canada, it seems, has started to lift some of their restrictions as well. Uh, what are your plans or do you have any yet for touring? Well, usually we play one or two shows a year. We're more of a studio band. Oh, okay. Uh, and, and yeah, seeing like like Dave, he's in BC and we're in Montreal. It's like uh, kind of hard to, <laughs> to get together to do a show. But sure. We're hoping we had made plans to play in Toronto as a band last year, uh, but that fell through, obviously. Uh, but uh, I'm still hanging on to, you know, it would be fun to play a few shows with Dave because like, yeah, he's just great, you know. Oh yeah, amazing, amazing player, uh, nice guy, you know, easy to work with, you know, enthusiastic about the music. Oh, those are the people you want. Yeah. So, did he record remote then? Yeah. Oh, he did. He recorded remote. Uh, had a great engineer helping him. Uh, 
Tyler Christians, uh, almost like a, a member of the band, basically, and a great engineer and, you know, Pineapple Sound uh, in BC. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I was just totally satisfied about the collaboration between, like, the, the three of us getting uh, Dave's stuff over. And he and Tyler took some videos of Dave recording remote and from his home. Oh, nice. Yeah, it was great. You can see some of them on our page, actually. Oh, good. I, I've got the page uh, in the show notes as well for everybody. In fact, I've got links to the album and uh, and, and then your website. Uh, it seems to me it, it that we're kind of getting used to this now, but I kind of miss the days of a band being together or being able to be together in a studio to record because it seems like the energy would be different. You're feeding off of each other in a live, real moment. Uh, but a lot of these remote recordings that I've heard, you really couldn't tell that you're not together. Yeah, well, that was the point, you see. Uh, like, my wife and I were in the studio together, but we recorded our tracks separately. All the tracks were recorded separately. And uh, my bass player was in one spot in Montreal. Uh, the violin player was in the other spot. And if you heard some background vocals from our, our, our boy, he's 10 years old, Gillen, with perfect pit. That's sweet. Yeah, so he re- he recorded a few background vocals on the last three releases. Mm-hmm. So so that was cool. And uh, no, I didn't feel uh, any lack of energy or synchronicity. It just uh, felt natural. Like the way it came out, it came out like hitting like a ton of bricks, basically. Well, and, and it, the sound, everybody is just so unified. You know, it, it's almost like you're in the room looking at each other, reading each other's minds. It just it feels so cohesive as it, every song. Yeah, well, that I got to definitely compliment uh, everybody who, who recorded on that because they they got it. Mm-hmm. They got it. Uh, the bass player was right in the pocket and with the drums and, you know, and uh, Dave, of course, Dave's a genius. He came out with so much cool stuff. Like it wasn't just a metal organ, you know, it's like synths and strings and clavinet and piano and his piano stuff is amazing too like really he, he's like his dad was a, a pianist and he you can tell you know well i was kind of surprised to hear a piano sound in this music but i thought it worked brilliantly yeah like i said i let dave uh, just run with the ball and he did and uh, wow you know yeah for, for sure I, he added he added a lot uh but speaking of of people blowing me away Let's talk about Michelle, because her vocals are everything from angelic to demonic. Yeah. And how does she take care of her voice? Or is that just something she has the natural ability to do? Well, she was uh, not a singer, uh, but she was like practicing the tunes in our studio just for fun, like karaoke. Hmm. Uh, when we had this last singer before her and... Uh, at one point it didn't work out with the last singer and an in- interim singer we had who did one show with us who argued with me all the time. Oh, fine. Uh, it, I don't know if she was right or I was right, but it, it was trivial. Mm-hmm. It was little things, you know, and yeah. you don't want that in a band. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just went to her one day and said, you want to sing? You know, and she goes, okay. <laughs> so, you know, she, she developed slowly uh, and surely, uh, she started off with a you know pretty basic voice, but then she got uh, I don't know if you ever heard the pop star Bela. 
uh, Bela gave her some lessons, and uh, then we had another person who gave her metal lessons, uh, Isaniel, a great singer on her own right, and who sings background on System Deceive, and Bela sings on uh, Disturbing Awakening. So they both coached her how to, you know, not hurt her voice and stuff like that, and uh, musically. But she has one of the best growls and screams I've ever heard in the business. Mm, yeah. And that's not that's natural. And her angelic voice, it's hard to find more angelic, you know? Yeah, it, it's just I, I actually thought that there were two different singers on the album because I when I listened to it the first time, I didn't look anything up. I mean, I knew that you and David were on the album and that's all I knew. I didn't know who did what. Uh, well, I mean, obviously, I knew David played keyboards and you were the guitar. That's all I knew. Because when the when I listen to an album for the first time, I really just want to focus on the music. And mm-hmm. when I heard her voice, uh, at first I thought, wow, this is a really beautiful singer. And then the growling stuff hit, and I thought, who's that? I really thought they were two different people. No, no one in the same. Absolutely amazing. The only the only other vocals you hear is like uh, me and Gillen singing back vocals on for example, it's Champ or Paler Ryder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, but it's all her pretty well. Yeah, I think Paler Ryder was when it really hit me uh, what her vocals could do, and I was <laughs> I was just blown away. I, I I I thought this is such an amazing sound, and I really hope that she can sing this way naturally, and this isn't something she's straining to do because it sounded so smooth and consistent that I I was hoping it was natural. Oh, yeah. It's all her. Very natural. Wow. And I love the way that that just organically came together, that, that she yeah. became a part of the band. Yeah, really. It, it, she just grew into the position, mm-hmm. you know, getting better and better with each uh, release. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's definitely the direction you want to go in. Uh, but as for you, I mean, you play lead guitar, you're playing some synth, you do the drums, you do backing vocals, you do mandolin. Are... <laughs> Is there anything else that you would like to add to your repertoire? Because that's that's a lot. Well, I, I play on other albums. I've played bass as well. Uh, on this album, I don't play bass. I don't play synths. I just play uh, guitar and mandolin and back vocals. Because uh, I I got such good players. Why do I need to do it? You know. Yeah, that that makes sense. I mean, if you can surround your people or yourself with people, and then you're also getting their creative side of it as well, not just the performance. Absolutely. If you listen, uh, there's about two or three uh, really great bass moments there where he just goes melodically along there, Jean, and uh, like uh, almost solos, really. Right. And I love the sound of his bass, too. Uh, It it just it really felt uh, it was it gave you a good bottom end, but it wasn't so muddy that you couldn't hear the dynamics of what he was doing. Yeah, that's that's definitely the way he recorded it. And I didn't have much to do in production except just like, you know, tighten it up. Right. But uh, it, it was right there from the beginning. Like uh, the the original sound was clean and, you know, punchy and and deep when need be. Uh, yeah. And Jean's a, a very melodic and he has a lot of ideas, you know. He's a great bass player. And, and I got to have a nice word about, uh, you know... Uh, Gwendolyn Gwen on violin. Mm-hmm. Like she always 
puts up these mini compositions, you know, in our songs, uh, one or two per album since uh, the last three. And uh, yeah, she's great. Yeah, and there's a stunning solo from her in, uh, I think it's in the first song, isn't it, The Champ? Champ, yeah, 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 that's amazing. Like I said, it's a mini composition, you know. If that song hadn't already been credited to like three people, I, I would have given her credit on this one. But I'll get her eventually. <laughs> that's good. Well, see, and I like that you care enough to take care of your people, too, instead of saying, well, this is pretty much my band, and yeah, I, I want you to be on it, but I pretty much wrote the songs. Like, I really love that you care about doing things the right way, taking care of the people that you work with. That means so much to me in this business. Yeah, I wasn't always like that, though. Like, uh, the origins of the band, uh, we had a lot of uh, fights and discussions and stuff, and, you know, I, while I was trying to take control. Mm-hmm. So I'm not uh, I'm not an angel. <laughs> <laughs> but you learn from it, obviously. Yeah, because I'm trying to keep the same lineup, you know, and growing together musically, which is great, you know. Um, I mean, at one point, like uh, my wife said, this is ridiculous. You got so many guests, you know. <laughs> and so, so, you know, I mean, we even had Vinnie Apice from Black Sabbath. We had, you know, we had a... Uh, John Gallagher from Raven playing bass on most of one album. Wow. You know, stuff like that. Well, you can't go wrong with Vinny. I mean, what a rock solid drummer. Well, what I did, actually, I was inspired uh, by the song Sign of the Southern Cross on uh, Mob Rules by Black Sabbath. Mm -hmm. That beat, I said, I'm going to write something that Vinny's going to fit into like that. Mm -hmm. And I did. And, you know, it's called Translucidity. Uh, Vinny just killed it, you know. It was perfect for him. It was that kind of like heaven and hell or sign of the Southern Cross slow beat that he's so good at. Because mm-hmm. it's yeah. very hard for a drummer to keep a slow beat even. It absolutely is. And this guy, like, he he kills it. He's great. It it seems to me that people's uh, impression of drummers when I get when I speak with them is that it's it's easier to play slow than fast. And I absolutely, as a drummer myself. I completely disagree. It's easier to keep an, an up-tempo beat because it's too easy to uh, to slip out of time when you're playing slow. Absolutely. I agree with you on that because I play drums as well. Right. I got, I got a nice little Alessis electronic kit here. And one day we decided, okay, so you want to put us in a category? We're going to do one completely Doom album, just three-piece plus voice, which we did, called Deja Doom. Uh, that was a fun experience, trying to get that Sabbath sound from Master of Reality uh, on a song called The Green Fairy. That worked out amazing. I, I'm a big fan. You mentioned Mob Rules earlier. That's one of my favorite Sabbath albums, that one and uh, Born Again, of course. Um, Absolutely. I, uh, yeah. I just heard that they recovered the original master tapes from Born Again, and Tony Iommi is thinking about remixing it. Yeah, but he says in time. He doesn't seem like in a rush to do it. Yeah. You know? But I talked to Ian about that album, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said he loves the album. You know, he's, it's just the production that's bad. Right. I think what happened that in the studio, they had a switch set for a certain, uh, you know, uh, EQ. Mm-hmm. And it was the wrong EQ. And it was too late to change it when it came out. It was like way too mid-rangey. Mm-hmm. So that's what I heard. For me, I kind of feel like I'm so used to the sound of it that I really don't think about the production so much. But 
there was a, a recent debate on the Deep Purple podcast about the song Born Again and this flute that Tony Iommi was credited with on the back of the album. And uh, finally found a video where somebody was able to identify the flute. And now I can't stop hearing it. In fact, I don't even hear the song anymore. Now I'm just hearing the flute. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but it, yeah. it, it is a great album. And uh, I know that Ian said that he has uh, the monitor mixes that he said were, you know, 100 times better than the actual production, which is a shame. But well, I've heard some of the demos like from that and they sounded great. Yeah. Such like a the early, early mixes and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, sounded better than the album in my in my ears, but uh, sure. if they do it, it'd be great. Yeah, I you hope know? so. I, I really hope so. Uh, you know, any any new release of that, I'm going to be chomping it a bit for just because it's such a favorite album of mine. Same here. I'll go buy it right away. <laughs> <laughs> so is is the plan then? Because you talked about the lineup, uh, is the plan then to uh, start working on another album at some point? Well, actually, I just. Uh in the middle of writing a first song for the next album today. Oh, good. Uh, before I called you, uh, I just did uh, the rough, the ghost guitar track and the, some basic drums. So I'm going to send it to everybody, see what they think. Mm-hmm. So that, that would be, uh, there, there's your premiere right there. It would be called, called suburban mist. Ooh. Yeah. That's an intriguing title. So it's got a really ghostly kind of jazz intro going into uh, a five eight kind of beat, like uh, arpeggios on the guitar, mm-hmm. and then it goes uh, full on like uh, riff mode for for like the uh, chorus goes in, and then we're into like heavy heavy mode, kind of like Children of the Sea chords, uh, but the heavy ones uh, for the choruses, and. I got a seven, eight part in the middle for the lead break, which is all riff. Well, it sounds like you're off to a really good start. So, yeah, it's an interesting song. And then it seags back. and Very nice. Well, there there were a couple of uh, really nice uh, timing changes, too, in, um, in Water Dog, where I thought I had to go back and listen to them and count them uh, just because I was so curious as to what they were. And there were a couple that were just changed to 5-4 from 4-4. And I thought... Wow, it seems like it's a much more drastic change than that, but it really was just one more beat. Yeah, I, I use a, a lot of different stuff. Uh, I have gone really overboard in the past, like with a like an eleven eight or a thirteen eight and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my favorites are definitely uh, five eight and seven eight, like when I want to do off stuff. Yeah, those are great, great time changes, but. I remember uh, my old roommate and I, we were uh, big fans of Chick Corea and we were listening to the album Inside Out. And uh, he he knocks on my door and he goes, come help me figure this out. He goes, I can't figure out what time signature this is in. And this is a guy who is a really good drummer. You know, he was playing a lot of odd time signatures at the time in his band. And uh, we sat, we sat there with a stick in our hand, tapping on the floor, counting and I looked at him and I said, you're not going to believe this. And he said, what? I said, this is in 4-4. <laughs> yeah, I've done stuff like that. Oh, I was blown away because it sounds like it's at least 7-8 or something even more bizarre. Because Chick Corea was such a master of masking things that you really never knew what was going on. And yeah, it was 4-4. Just complete shock. Yeah, one album that really blew my mind and changed the direction I played guitar was uh, Return to Forever, Romantic Warrior, mm-hmm. Aldi Miola, man. Oh, oh, yeah. Like, I listened to him and I go, oh, I got to play these 
mutes and stuff with my right hand and like up and downs and stuff. So I did. I learned that. My left hand is not as good as my right hand at, at this point. Mm-hmm. Never was. But, you know, to me, if I can do it, I'll try it. And if I can't do it, I'll try it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, you're, you're not going to grow if you don't push the boundaries. Yeah, well, this song here I'm telling you about, Suburban Mist, uh, I'm using a lot of al- alternate uh, fingering uh, riffs instead of, like, easy ones for me. I said, okay, I'm going to push myself a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I did. Nice. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to hearing the song that isn't done yet. The, the fun part about all of this is I'll write the songs and then forget them. And then, oh, wow, we got to do, a, like, a you know, online show or whatever, I have to learn my own songs, you know? Well, I I was uh, listening to one of the interviews with Deep Purple after they came out with their last album, Whoosh, and they were talking about that. They they said, uh, we put these songs together roughly, and then we go into the studio and record them, and then we have to learn them for the tour. And I thought, but you just recorded it. You know the song, but they, they know it enough to record it. Yeah, exactly what I do. You know, I'll I'll finish a song and like out of sight, out of mind. Mm-hmm. And oh, my God, yes, I got to learn 10 songs here for, you know, uh, the live show or whatever, you know. <laughs> do you do you find, though, that when you're doing that, you look back and go, when did I write that? How did I play that again? It just kind of yeah. like it, just yeah. because it was in Pretty the moment. Well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, here I am. Uh, well. Some of the songs I've known for a long time because uh, I, I wrote them in the 70s or 80s. Like, for example, The Champ, I wrote that in the 80s with uh, my uh, Toronto band back in the day, 84, 85. Uh, Return of the Light was written with a band in 78. And all the other ones are, are new. Oh, but, okay. Uh, so I've got, I'm ahead two songs to learn the stuff because I know them well. Right. Uh, I, I just learned Taylor last week. Taylor Ryder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and let's see. Yeah. So for, for uh, a live cast, I would definitely do uh, Champ, Return of the Light, Taylor, uh, Groove Aquan, and The Mold. The Mold, I was kind of playing around with it too last week. I don't know that I could pick a favorite on this album, but I am leading toward Paler Ryder. I think that's it. I mean, they're all such great songs to me, honestly. And But that song really sticks out. Yeah, it rocks. Yeah. yeah. For sure. Yeah, definitely. Definitely rocks. I love that song. Michelle's favorite, too, I think, on that oh, album. It? Okay. Uh, one thing, too, that I wanted to add uh, before we wrap up is that um, I, I, I noticed that the way that the album ends, if you're listening on CD on repeat or or your, you know, your player in your computer where it's just going to repeat the album, the ending of the album flows beautifully back into the beginning. Oh, I, I didn't notice that. <laughs> Yeah, I just thought it was such a perfect ending. And I, I like to do that. I like to see if if it would just repeat. How does, that was it, just how man, does it That was just mandolin. Oh, was it? Yeah. The ending of Elliptical Choice is, is the last, last picking is just mandolin by itself with some echo. Okay. I, I didn't pick out it was a mandolin. That's interesting. I'm going to have to go back and listen to that again now. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I've got mandolin. Let's see. I've got mandolin on, I think, on... Elliptical choice for sure. I'm trying to remember. Uh, man, breach of a humanoid and elliptical choice. 
I always do like uh, one or two, sometimes three songs with mandolin on every album, except like Deja Doom, which, like I said, is guitar, bass, drum, vocals. That brings me, I, I did think of a, something I, I forgot to ask you earlier when you were talking about it, but is, you know, in this world, it seems to me like we have so many genres of music that, that really overlap. Do you find it difficult to really narrow down the, uh, the title of what an album is? Not not the title of the album, but the uh, genre. Not really. Uh, you know, like somebody said, it's all rock and roll. You know, mm-hmm. and they were right. I think that I think it was Lemmy who said that. There was somebody that said that to me. It was uh, Roger Glover. Oh, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Roger's a nice guy too. Oh, he is. He, I got to meet him in person. Had about a half hour to chat with him. It was such a great conversation. And he, um, I, I was explaining to him, you know, how Deep Purple had influenced me. I said, and when I write a lot of my classical music, there's a lot of trade-offs like there is with Richie and John Lord. And, um, yeah, and John yeah, was still in the band at the time when I met him. And, uh, and, and he said, that's, that's great. It's all rock and roll. Yeah, that, that's basically what I think. Oh, speaking of Roger, I mean, I've met him a few times, but the spookiest time, you got to hear this. Okay. This is, this is spooky. Uh, so Deep Purple were playing in Ottawa. This is in 2011. Mm-hmm. And, uh, me and my wife are at a shopping mall in Ottawa called the Rideau Mall. And, uh, I just said out of the blue, in five minutes or less, we will see Roger Glover of Deep Purple. And guess who showed up? That is the most random thing you could have said in any moment. Yeah. And it was Roger. I kind of said, Don, I could have said, you know, yeah, I said, Roger Glover is showing up here in this mall and we're just exiting the mall. And who's there? Roger. If you would have started that story with, I met Roger Glover at a shopping mall in Ottawa, I would have said, okay, and how much alcohol was involved? (laughs) (laughs) But so, so what happened is that, so we took some pictures, talked a little bit, you know, and uh, so I tell him the story and he goes, oh, be careful what you wish for, because it could happen. So I used the what he said as lyrics in another song of mine. <laughs> ah, very nice. Yeah, but I've seen him angry once. Oh, is that but possible? Speaking, yeah, I'll tell you about it in a minute. But speaking of influencing Deep Purple to do something, I did exactly that with one of my sons. Uh, we're backstage and we're we're with Don and Don. You know, like he always does a solo during the show mm-hmm. that has a song that applies to whatever location he's in right so he goes to us do you know uh you know a good quebecois folk song or something right so we said yeah we know jean du pays right uh which is uh like almost a national song here and uh, so he goes well can you hum it to me so we hum it to him and at the show he goes out plays a full orchestrated version perfectly of the song and I go, that's us. Wow. And he did, he did email me to thank me. Mm-hmm. And uh, he played it the next day in Quebec City as well. Amazing. That guy is just phenomenal. I mean, he covered uh, a couple of gigs with Uriah Heep when Phil's uh, son had passed away. And I thought, how do you just walk in and play a Uriah Heep gig on keyboards? That, that's got to be such a monumental task. But he or he walks in, he walks in the studio and plays an entire Judas Priest album. Right. Painkiller, right? It's unbelievable. Yeah. 
So the guy's everywhere. Uh, last I heard, he has 284 collaborations. If you look on his uh, Wikipedia, wow! And we're in, we're in there. <laughs> that's that's amazing. They talk about a guy that just loves to work. Yeah, he's great, and he's uh, covered Emerson as well. No problems. Oh, really? Yeah, on uh, one of his latest albums, Keyed Up, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, back to Roger being angry. Now, that's a hell of a story. I've never seen Roger angry, but that time, yes. So what happened is that we're backstage, you know, and Roger is talking to people and people are getting in line, you know, and this guy like. OK, I, I'm sorry. What what year is this? What's the time frame? 2008 in uh, in Germany. OK. Uh, in Ravensburg. And. Uh, that night they put us on the stage, me and my friend, Deep Purple, like we're side, we're right on the stage with them. And they did that at one time too with my wife, me and my wife in London, uh, no, in Glasgow. Anyway, so everybody's in line, like to talk to Roger or, who, or Ian or whoever. And uh, this guy with a huge pile of records pushes everybody away and gets in front of Roger. He says, can you give me a pick? Uh, can you sign this? Whoa. And Roger starts getting angry and he goes, you want my fucking beer too? You know, <laughs> stuff like that, you know, and he starts pushing the guy, he says, get away, you know, get out. Right. Yeah. Oh, man, wow. he was angry. Wow. That's so rude. Yeah. And this guy, you know, like pushing everybody like that. And what the hell? Yeah. That, oh man, I, I would be upset too. And I, I'm sure it takes a lot to push a guy like Roger to be angry. Yeah. Cause he's so amenable and, a fable and you know he's a nice guy i remember once we walk in backstage and he's serving drinks would you like a beer would you like this you know mm-hmm. that's roger yeah yeah he did one interview with somebody while he baked them banana nut bread oh there you go <laughs> when when that's uh, roger all right when i met him he said uh, we talked for about, uh, pretty close to a half an hour and he, and he looked at me he looked at his watch he goes i really hate to do this because i'm really enjoying speaking with you but we have to to catch our flight um, but I want to give you something. And so he's searching his pockets. And I said, well, Roger, you signed my my book, you know, because I got one of the tour programs. And uh, and he goes, no, no, I'm going to give you something. So he finds a uh, a pick in his pocket and he gave it to me. Yeah, <laughs> I got my a, hand, uh, you know. I got a ton of Roger picks, mm-hmm. <laughs> orange and green ones. They're all triangular. Oh, this one's uh, elliptical. Really? That's, yeah, that's rare. Yeah, it's uh, it's yellow. It's uh, it just says deep purple on it, but it's got his uh, name on the back, so he he might have played. Yeah, I got some of those from Steve. Mm-hmm. Steve got uh, elliptical ones. Yeah, Steve's another one that's just a really nice guy. Yeah, truly nice guy. Yeah. Well, I I can't thank you enough for for coming on the show and telling these stories. I'm so excited about Water Dog. I apologize it's taken me so long to get to you guys because I wanted to, to do it as soon as the album came out. But man, you guys really came out with something I think is very special. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Well, you take care and you stay in touch, my friend. You too. All right. Keep us posted on the, the next album too. And we'll have you back on and we'll, we'll talk some more. All right. What a great guy, what a talented musician, and just so much fun to talk to. Such an interesting life he's had, great history, great experiences. And you know, it just goes to show if you just go for the things in life that you want. I mean, 
He just reached out to David Stone and got David Stone to play on his album. How cool is that? That would never have happened if he just sat there and went, oh yeah, it'd be nice if he played, if I could do a song with him or something. You know, you got to reach out and make things happen. That's how this podcast happened. That's how this interview happened. You just find something that you're interested in and you go for it. And it's either going to work out or it isn't. And in this case, both of these cases, it worked out very well. So stay tuned for the interview with David Stone. We'll be back in the next episode. Cheers. Cheers.